The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa. Actually, with Deirdre Bosa. She's live here at CNBC headquarters today and tomorrow. It's a comeback day. We're back together on set. Lots of colleagues back in the office and a lot of software stocks coming back in a significant way in the early trade. The Nasdaq outperforming again ahead of this afternoon's key Fed decision. A breakdown of the volatility and why growth stocks are popping. Then bulls in the China stocks. Shopping beaten up tech names like Alibaba and JD, which are surging this morning. We will tell you why next. And finally, the marketplace market from DoorDash to Amazon. A look at why one investor is getting bullish amid rising rates, Steve. We will kick off our feed today, though, with that huge bounce we were seeing in growth stocks in this morning's trade. Snowflake, that's up double digits as well, but still 50 percent off of its highs. It is a similar story across the pandemic, darling. Zoom is up almost seven, but still 70 percent off its highs. Atlassian, Datadog also surging, and they're helping to lead the Nasdaq higher. Uh, John, (laughs) it's sort of this yo-yo. We're going back and forth. It's hard to know what's a dead gap bounce and what's not, but notable that this is Fed Day. A lot of these expectations are built in. But when you look on a one-week basis, even though you're seeing these huge numbers today, there's still a lot of red. Yeah, I mean, but these are dramatic, dramatic bounces. I don't remember when we've seen bounces like this. And I think it's got to make investors consider, you know, we get caught up in the positive headlines and like, oh, things can only go up, up, up from here. And then you get caught up in the negative headlines. Oh, maybe everything was over. Where is the value really? How do you want to value these things, especially when you've got we just mentioned Snowflake. We talked about MongoDB Snowflake. Still got product revenue doubling Mm -hmm. year over year. Is it slowing? Okay, yeah, sure. But we heard from, uh, was it Brad Gerstner earlier, that he thinks it can triple in the next three years? Well, a day like this makes you think maybe he's right. Again, we're going to talk marketplace later this hour as well. Some of those gig economy, shared economy names as we see Uber and Lyft. Now Dash, um, you know, helps subsidize some of their drivers with high gas prices. The question remains, John, that we ask pretty much every day now is where do valuations settle? I don't think that we are learning anything new today. It's just perhaps some relief. Yeah, I think you're learning today that you can't follow the crowd because all of a sudden the crowd's going in a different direction yeah. uh, in this market. You know, looking at some of the uh, bigger cap names, uh, you know, Apple is up 2% this morning. That's nothing to, to sort of just no. sniff at. But still, it's at around $2.5 trillion in valuation, a little higher than that, well off of the $3 trillion high that it hit several weeks ago. Yeah, and another group we're going to talk about now, John, is those Chinese stocks. Mm. Wow, you don't see those numbers very often. They're absolutely surging. Internet names that we saw slammed earlier this week, they're getting a big boost this morning. Pinduoduo, 
Check out these shares. They're up more than 40% with Baba, Baidu, JD.com, all up over 20% each. Despite that pop, though, all of these stocks remain in the red this week with the K-Web still having lost more than a fifth of its value since the start of the year. These are really whipsawed moves, John. And I don't know. I mean, you saw a few months ago Charlie Munger say, OK, some of these stocks are looking like a bargain. After that, they continue to lose, what, $100 billion in value. Is this another psycho? I mean, y- you said it there. Uh, Pinduoduo is up 45 percent. <laughs> on the day for the moment, but still down 8.5% for the week. It's a reminder that uninvestable, which some people are calling this group of stocks, doesn't yeah. mean untradeable. <laughs> I mean, certainly tradable. But my goodness, how can you be up 45% on the day and still down for the week? To that point, Didi, right, which we've been talking a lot about, it's up 42% this morning. How much is that stock worth? $2.56, John. So that just shows you how far these have come down. So even though these are huge numbers, there's still a lot of ground to make up. Uh, we're going to dig in more on China, specifically state media signaling a more business-friendly environment after a year of crackdown, saying regulators are working towards a plan for U.S.-listed Chinese stocks and that the country would complete its examination of Internet platforms as soon as possible. Joining us to break down the impact, Bank of Communications International Managing Director and Head of Research, Hao Hong. How it is great to have you on the program. We used to talk all the time when I was based in Asia. Um, you covered these markets so closely. You're on the ground. Why should investors sort of believe Beijing this time, or should they even? Do we buy this bounce? Yeah. Good morning, Deirdre. Uh, good to be here. Um, today's uh, meeting uh, chaired by Liu He is very significant. Uh, I think it's the first time in a long time uh, that the government, the top government official, articulates uh, its strategy for the market and especially for the uh, tech sector going forward. And I think specifically, you know, he said that, you know, we should be focusing on uh, pushing out market-friendly policies uh, from here on. Right? So that is the reason why we're seeing all this sizable bounce. You know, even though now uh, there's still much uncertainties, uh, and also right now this is a very high-level talk. Uh, in the coming weeks, you know, there will be detailed policies uh, rolling out, uh, and remains to be seen. But for now, I think you know the the, uh, the bounce is so sizable that it's worth participating. Yeah, how at the same time, sort of the issues have piled up for investors in Chinese stocks. There was the issue of regulation, of course, but now there's questions about another COVID lockdown and restrictions. What kind of support do you expect to see from Beijing and will it be enough? Yeah, I think um, the COVID situation is still unraveling, right? So, you know, because it's the Omicron variant, it is very difficult to see how they can, you know, stick with the uh, zero tolerance policy. Uh, you know, at the same time, maintain economic growth without much policy help. Uh, so already, you know, we've, we've seen uh, finance ministry uh, said that, you know, the uh, property tax trial is not going to be uh, uh, extended beyond uh, the number of cities they identified earlier. Right? So basically that alleviates the pain on the property sector as well. Uh, so I think that is immediately follow up, you know, uh, from the uh, Liu He's meeting. So I would expect that in the coming weeks, it, there will be more and more similar policies uh, announcement as well. Um, how, to what extent do geopolitics and Russia play into what, what we see China saying right now and maybe the idea that they don't want to be isolated in the global economy while at the same time they're trying to avoid uh, picking sides and getting caught up in U.S. Sanc- and, and uh, you know, Western sanctions? 
it is very important, uh, you know, in a way, uh, how the U.S. listed Chinese companies, you know, running into the roadblock with the SEC is one example, right? So because it's a very important financing venue for Chinese tech companies, you know, for them to finance their growth. So if you cut that off and all these uh, companies come back to Hong Kong, now, even though they can remain listed, but, you know, the uh, the market size of Hong Kong is not, you know, entirely compar- comparable uh, to that of the U.S. So it is very important. And, you know, I think, you know, the U.S. is somehow, in a way, using it as a bargaining chip uh, to negotiate with China. So it remains to be seen. Uh, it's good to see some uh, peaceful development today uh, between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, but I think a lot more needs to be done to bring back peace. Okay, but but given that, then, if this is uh, partly reflecting what's happening geopolitically, how stable is it? Because the geopolitical situation, particularly between Russia and Ukraine, is so volatile, might we hear China, you know, moderating uh, and and changing tone as it suits them because of the geopolitical climate and stocks reacting as a result? Yeah, I think it's a very complicated uh, situation to negotiate. Uh, I think uh, today uh, in Liu He's meeting, he also mentioned that um, the uh, the Chinese uh, CSRC is working with the U.S. SEC uh, to sort out a plan uh, for the U.S. listed Chinese companies, and they're making good progress. And then at the same time, uh, I think Liu He is also uh, saying that um, uh, the Chinese authority is working uh, with the Hong Kong uh, Stock Exchange, uh, you know, to prepare for some of the companies to come back to Hong Kong as well. So I think you know there are. Uh, preparation on both sides. And, you know, let's hope that the negotiation with the USSCC goes well. Hao, thanks for staying up late with us. Hao Hong, Thank talk you. to you again soon. And turning now to chips, two new notes out today. The first from Bernstein, upgrading Micron to outperform, indicating a 35% upside for the stock, saying any fears of a correction to the memory market uh, would be short-lived. Plus, Wells Fargo adding 2021 darling NVIDIA to its signature picks list, citing momentum in its data center business and gaming GPUs, but also saying they expect the company's auto opportunities to, quote, take off in the second half of this calendar year, unquote. Not one to be left out. Intel also announcing a major investment in Europe, planning to spend $36 billion across the continent. The company starting off with a German chip-making complex with construction beginning in the first half of 2023. Production slated for 2027, pending European commercial approval and subsidies. D, this is Pat Gelsinger's playbook to start there because mm-hmm. that's, yes. that's a lot of money in capital investment at a time when, uh, you know, for months, he's been CEO for about a year. He's been talking about the need to invest not just in foundry, but in chips because the West can't rely on Asian stability. That certainly has been what we've seen play out over the past year. And, hey, I mean, lots of bets against Intel right now. But if he's right, he's going to have a lot in the ground to accelerate on. I was going to say, John, he came in with such a bold plan and there was so much skepticism as to whether he can pull it off. Of course, the jury is still out. This is a multi-year process that's going to have to happen. But does it feel like the market is buying into it a little bit more amid everything that was sort of announced in that journal piece, uh, that's going to hit profitability further, which is something that investors have looked at. But shares, as we can see, are up nearly 3%. So do you think that he's 
gaining perhaps a little bit more confidence? I mean, he was pretty confident to begin with. So I, don't, I guess the question is, are investors yes. gaining more, more confidence? Look, the stock is, is in the mid-40s right now, which isn't where you'd want to see it if people really, really believed. But I guess compared to what we've seen other stocks do, mm-hmm. uh, not so bad. But what we really have to watch is are they able to meet the technical benchmarks on forward-leaning process technology that they say they're going to meet? Every time I talk to Pat, he says we're at or ahead of schedule on those things. That's the only way those fabs are going to do them any good is if they're producing cutting-edge technology, and that's what we're waiting for. But it also feels like the market realizes that there's no alternative to this. What we're seeing play out right now in geopolitics just underscores the need for an American company to move into the foundry business. Another thing I wanted to note, John, is we've been talking about this tech sell-off. Um, a lot of the recent IPOs got hit as well. And SoftBank, of course, looking to list ARM before the end of the year or some, before the middle of next year. Um, 20 out of 23, I believe all but three of its IPOs are underwater. <laughs> so, you know, in this market dynamic, we talk a lot about the individual stocks and companies, but the big, you know, holders of them have been really taken down in this also. They really have, which, which makes that ARM IPO yeah. all the much more important. And, I mean, ARM is, the business case for ARM a decade, decade plus ago seemed kind of, okay, ARM chips everywhere, smart everything, how's that going to work? That is actually playing out. I think the question now is, to what degree can ARM get paid in that environment? To what degree are they going to take advantage of software and participate in an ecosystem that allows them to make money in more ways, you know, continue to branch into graphics, you know, et cetera? I mean, you look at the M1. In the Apple laptops, that's an ARM-based it's an ARM, chip. Yeah, and, right? and Amazon is making ARM-based chips now, too. The question is, I know that you've asked this as well, is what kind of destruction happened during this sort of years-long um, NVIDIA trying to acquire ARM? What did that give the competition? So we'll see how that plays out. But as we talk increasingly about the importance of chips and what Intel is doing, we'll see if SoftBank can make some of that up on an yeah. IPO. Yeah. All right, PayPal has fallen 45% since the start of the year. Why Moffat Nathanson's hopeful for a turnaround after the break? Tech Check, just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.
Let's get a gut check on PayPal experiencing what Moffat Nathanson described as a crash landing from pandemic highs, but it is higher this morning, along with a lot of else. The fintech company down 60 percent, though, in six months. Many investors troubled by management's abrupt shift in focus from user growth to ARPU growth, average revenue per user. Bank of America downgrading the stock from buy to neutral. Moffat Nathanson maintaining their buy rating, saying that they're cautiously optimistic that PayPal can deliver on that user ARPU growth, but stress the importance of rebuilding trust with investors. You know, they cited the Pinterest rumor as part of the reason they lost faith. I think that's when a lot of people thought, are they desperate to get growth back? But you have to remember, this company has Venmo. That's what, 60 million users. The problem is that they've struggled to monetize it. And now maybe it's too late because there's so many more competitors in the market. Yeah, I mean, I, I use Venmo. Venmo, do you use Venmo? Yeah. I mean, how are they monetizing that? It's, it's, it's kind of t- What ecosystem are they sort of sucking you into? I also use PayPal, and I can see that getting monetized, you know, that main product, a lot more easily. But, yeah, that, that Pinterest sort of boondoggle moment. That, to me, was there's so much to do in actual payments. Yeah. We see Stripe doing it. We see other companies linking in payment services. Why would you, why would you even talk about that? <laughs> it had a lot of people scratching their heads. I need to clarify. Yes, I use Venmo, but you know what I use more these days? Cash app. I hate to say it. No. No? Zelle. I can't believe oh. it. When Zelle came out, I said, who's going to go into their banking app? See. But more people that I know... I know a lot of people on Venmo, but a lot of the people who I have to, you know, transfer money to are on Zelle, which is interesting because Venmo had this time to really bring in users, upsell them. The problem was there wasn't a lot of upselling, as you said. See, I, I went Cash selling. App. I went Cash App because you, you, you're so young, right? You look so But Zelle, you know, despite it doesn't look like, but you're getting older. There I will, you go. I will say you can buy your crypto on Venmo, though, which is easier. You still right. can't do that. On Zelle? No. <laughs> no. You, you, that's not what Zelle is for. Zell is for, you know, middle-aged people like me. Anyway, uh, the IGV software sector ETF might be in the green today, but it's still down 20% for the year. So how do you play the sector? Our next guest has some ideas. He highlights two baskets of stocks, one for a more defensive environment, and one should macro worries begin to subside. Joining us now to discuss Wells Fargo senior equity analyst Michael Turin. Uh, Michael, good morning. I kind of want to start with the risk back on scenario because some of the Mm -hmm. names you've got in there, one in particular, I think is really interesting. And that's uh, Atlassian, ticker team, uh, software, uh, you know, product led growth. Um, Why isn't that and that growth story uh, without some of those overhead costs? Why isn't that good no matter what the environment does have to do with valuations? Yeah, I mean, it's probably primarily valuation first and foremost, like product-led growth. We've said this is a difficult macro backdrop, but the fundamentals across software are as strong as ever. And the majority of stocks just aren't reflecting those fundamentals at these levels. You cited the IGV software is down 40% on average. We're below five-year average multiples. So, you know, the macro has weighed heavier on the Q4 earnings season than the fundamentals would reflect. But names like Atlassian are fantastically positioned from a secular standpoint. We like to focus on developers. They have always given profitable growth since their foundation. Um, And we've said the leaders likely need to lead us out of this. Relative valuation is still clustered across software. So the platform names, the the leaders, the Microsofts, the Workdays, the Salesforce, I think makes sense to show the initial strength. But after that, the mid-cap growth names have certainly more upside embedded into them, given, given what's reflected in the shares today. Now, taking a peek at one of those more defensive names that you highlight into it, which is interesting. Of course, yeah. we got tax season coming up in about a month, but also they've diversified increasingly, not yeah. just 
focus on small business, but also now more consumer with Credit Karma and, uh, and other things. What do you view as being the benefit, uh, the defensive benefit even in a stock like that? Yeah, the defensive benefits are number one, U.S. centric. So yes, MailChimp does bring them more diversified international base, but a lot of the global, global conflicts and things we're looking at are taking place overseas into it has historically been U.S. centric. And then you do have the catalyst of tax season directly ahead of us. No question. There's just a demographic shift that's playing out favorably. Intuit has done a lot of smart things with TurboTax Live, the expert on-demand platform. We're seeing them leverage that across QuickBooks as well. Um, so it's really a, a product story that's humming on all cylinders. And you're right, they're becoming more diversified. That being said, the tax season catalyst still ahead is attractive. And this is a different Intuit than we've seen previously. They're proving able to add some inorganic capabilities, still expand margin at a good clip. And we do think Credit Karma expands the consumer opportunity and MailChimp similarly expands the small business opportunity beyond just accounting. Michael, it's Deirdre. We often talk about the dot-com crash of 20 years ago these days. One VC yeah. came on our air last week and said that this was, you know, fully-fledged dot-com crash 2.0. When you start to look at names to pick up, how do you know what's an Amazon and what's a Cisco, for an example? A lot of people point to Amazon. Yes, it continued to grow and grow after, but Cisco still hasn't actually regained those levels. It's still a great company, Um, but the valuation just never, you know, it's stuck. It's been a bit stuck. So how do you discern between tech companies? Yeah, I mean, it's a good observation. It's difficult. We've certainly filled the question just on why couldn't we stay lower for longer or uh, precursors of the, of the dot-com bubble? I'll, I'll say a few things. You know, first and foremost, software business models have changed a lot. So if you look back, there weren't a lot of um, large-cap software companies at that point in time. It was not a recurring-based business model. So you have a lot more predictability in these businesses than we've had before. There's obviously a continued secular shift. Um, and the good news from a valuation backstop currently is we can start with the highest quality names. So I think you're looking for, we're looking for TAMs, we're looking for profitable growth, we're looking for management teams you can trust, ideally founder-led, where applicable, and that's where the names that we're highlighting um, throughout this report come through. So Microsoft, Workday, Salesforce, and the large got more defensive bucket, names like Atlassian, ZoomInfo, uh, Confluent, and others in, in the SPIDCAP bucket. Um, look, you're never going to get all of them right, but I think at these levels, the risk-reward is tilted much more favorably. And the benefits of software are significantly stronger here than we've ever seen, because I think SaaS is still deserving of a premium, given that visibility um, that you get into the underlying business fundamentals. Yeah. It's nothing to you forget. Microsoft isn't founder-led almost. Uh, about a year ago, it feels like it, <laughs> still it feels like it right? Um, about a year ago, we were talking a lot about uh, AI, right? The AI yeah. being the, the future uh, of software. To what degree should investors, even can investors, look through at product results and commentary and, and see which companies are doing the best at developing AI technologies and making them relevant to customers? And to what degree is that an investable accelerant? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely an important theme. It's certainly benefiting the mega cap cloud vendors. So Microsoft, Azure, certainly seeing tremendous benefits from that. But we've seen proliferation of data. The data sets are getting larger. Um, consumer preferences are rising. So there is continued appetite for AI. Um, being based in Silicon Valley, I spent a lot of time talking to uh, those in technology who are smarter than myself, like you might do, John, as well, and trying to unpack who in the technology landscape is really attracting more attention um, in, in that regard. But as there's more data, there's continued appetite from customers to find more, um, particularly in a tight labor market. Anything that's productivity enabling that can 
open up some automation capabilities has true ROI attached to it. And I think significant budget and thematic um, tailwinds behind it as well. Yep. Love, love talking to people smarter than me. It seems to happen all the time. <laughs> Michael, thank you. Michael Turner. My job too. Wells Fargo. Thanks very much. DoorDash shares, they are almost 70% off their highs, but our next guest says that now is the time to buy the bull case for marketplace stocks. That is coming after the break, so don't go anywhere. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort and Julia Borston. The Nasdaq outperforming the other indexes by a wide margin this morning as growth gain names regain some life in today's trade. Even big tech is benefiting all of the fang. All the mega caps are in the green. Plus, Julia has a look at some new tools from Instagram for no, not influencers, but for parents. That story is later this hour. First, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Rahel. Hi, Deirdre. Good morning. Nice to see you in the building. And here's what's happening at this hour. Shares of Starbucks holding on to strong gains after CEO Kevin Johnson announced his retirement. Former CEO Howard Schultz will take over the top job until a new CEO is found. Starbucks says that Johnson told the board that he wanted to retire a year ago and hoped to do so when the pandemic had eased. Shares of Kohl's, meantime, surging about 7 percent. That's after Axios reported that Hudson's Bay, the owner of Saks Fifth Avenue, is considering a bid for the company. Kohl's has already rejected two other takeover offers this year. Homebuilder sentiment is down again, marking it four months in a row. The National Association of Homebuilders says that higher mortgage rates are adding to pain caused by higher construction costs and supply chain issues. However, demand from home buyers, well, that remains strong. And Walmart wants to hire another 50,000 workers by the end of April. So this builds on plans to add 150,000 employees last September. Walmart says that the new hires will fill roles across its stores, campuses, and supply chain facilities. John, always nice to see you in the building too, John. <laughs> yes. Don't want to make you feel left like, out. Thank you, Rahel. Uh, <laughs> I enjoy seeing Dee in the building as well. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Fed expected to raise rates today at 2 as tech stocks uh, across the sector have seen massive selling around the prospect of higher rates. Rebounding, though, in today's trade, Dom Chu joins us now with a playbook on how to navigate the volatility. But Dom, I don't see I don't see a binder in your hand. You got that playbook memorized? No binder. Yeah, I, I've had to commit the playbook to my mind <laughs> right now because a lot of it centers around this notion of volatility and just what types of companies, what types of stocks could be even more volatile than the market. So if things turn south or they turn north, these are the stocks that kind of move a lot more with them. So if you look at the Invesco QQQ Trust, the tech tracks, the NASDAQ 100, we know about how far it's come off of its highs here. But just to kind of put things in context for that interest rate discussion you made. The 10-year Treasury note yield back around the November highs was just around approximately 1.6%. Call it the 10-year yield. Right now, you're talking to hit at one point today, 
2.2%. So as interest rates have gone up, right, the market has gone down, especially for technology-type stocks. That's the one thing to watch. That plays out if you dig one layer deeper into what's happening with the sectors overall, because it has been the more growth-oriented sectors that have taken the biggest hits. If you look within the S&P 500 on a year-to-date basis, the three worst-performing sectors are communication services, that media trade, consumer discretionary, we know a lot of that trade there is driven by Tesla, and then the technology sector overall. These three represent the three worst-performing sectors since you can maybe assume a little that that interest rate discussion has come full steam. Now, as For the most volatile stocks, we looked at the NASDAQ 100 and tried to find which stocks have the highest beta. That is to say, a measure of market volatility that makes them more volatile than the current market overall. If you take a look at some of those names, among the eight that have betas of one and a half or higher, 1.5 or higher, Workday is one of those names. It's up about one and a quarter percent or one and three quarters percent today. But Workday, as you can see here, has been very volatile to the downside, much more so than the broader market, given the interest rate concerns. Another one to watch here on the from work on cloud computing to a software side of things is Autodesk. That particular stock, again, precipitously to the downside as interest rate worries have come up. So it could be more volatile if history holds true. And then the most volatile stock in the entire Nasdaq 100 is maybe no surprise, Tesla. That stock has outpaced the market both to the up and downside when it has done so. And you can see here, Tesla shares up pretty big today, more so than the broader market. So when it comes to volatility, Deirdre, John, it comes, to, it comes down to whether or not certain stocks will do even more volatility than the overall market. And by the way, guys, if you want the rest of the top eight all those stocks that have one and a half betas or higher, just go over to my Twitter feed at the Domino. I've posted them up there for you guys. Yeah, I love I love those early tweets, Dom. Uh, we're going to keep with this theme and look at DoorDash, the delivery service, saying that you, all U.S. drivers will be eligible for a new gas rewards program. The announcement coming as Uber and Lyft announced new surcharges to help drivers counter rising fuel prices. Our next guest is bullish on the space, telling investors to take a long-term outlook on the stocks. Joining us now, Canvas Ventures general partner Mike Gaffari. Mike, Welcome to Check Check. It is great to have you. Let's start with this idea of marketplace stocks. It feels like they're sort of the first to go in a portfolio in a rising rate inflationary environment. Growth is slowing post-pandemic. They're still largely unprofitable. So why would investors want to sort of nibble at these versus other sectors where the unit economics may be stronger, like enterprise cloud? Look, I've spent my whole career in marketplaces. I was an executive at Yelp. I was CEO of E24, a food delivery company where I competed with DoorDash and I saw how they execute. Uh, and I'm an investor now at Canvas Ventures as a VC in several marketplace companies. And in the marketplace sector, we did a study uh, where we looked and it's 60% down from all-time highs. A lot like cloud. These are highly volatile stocks. But now, as you think long-term, there is a buying opportunity because these companies do have long-term defensibility. I think something a lot of people miss is three out of the top five mega cap tech stocks that we talk about a lot, Google, Amazon, Facebook, they have major marketplace business models actually driving a lot of their revenue. So these things are very sticky. They actually have more defensibility potentially than cloud in the long term, but there is a unit economics trade-off. So I think for long-term buyers, there could be buying opportunities. 
That's a great point, Mark, uh, Mike, that some of these mega caps, their core business is still marketplace. But we're in a much different environment where there's so many VC dollars that Uber, Lyft, DoorDash has had to rely on. I know you like DoorDash better than some of the others. But at the same time, this is a company that's moving into other areas such as instant delivery. They're expanding their Dashmart model. So is that going to make this more unprofitable just at a time when investors are looking for something different? They want profitability more than ever? Yeah, I think that's a challenge for all these marketplaces is this year is very bumpy. They're high beta. There's a lot of pressure to show profitability. There's a lot of pressure to show stability. And these stocks are anything but. So I think for this year, it will be a bumpy ride. And if you're going to buy in now, you have to buckle up. The problem is if you wait a year for everything to settle down, for interest rates to stabilize, for the Ukraine situation to stabilize, you might be waiting too long and you might miss the rally. So it's very hard to call the exact bottom. But it is a decent time to at least think about dollar cost averaging if you have a view that some of these stocks might outperform their peers, like DoorDash and Airbnb. I know you are talking earlier about founder-led stocks also having a premium. And there's a lot of benefit there that these companies really have a long-term vision uh, and a, a view around defensibility driven by that founder in a way that Uber and some of the others might not. Mike, you make such an interesting point uh, about stocks that we don't think of as being marketplaces necessarily still having marketplace characteristics from the hyperscalers themselves. I would point out uh, Affirm, Klarna, some of the payments players are like that. And then yeah. we just had Shantanu Narayan on yesterday talking about Adobe Experience Cloud. And it, it's got you know, characteristics kind of similar to Shopify in a lot of ways. So my question to you is, what are the right metrics to measure marketplace health? As investors try to look at uh, who's got the right kind of ecosystem dynamics that are helping partners uh, feel like they can do well, they're going to invest more in the platform and add to the profitability and growth of that marketplace player overall? So this is a great question. I've actually got a marketplace checklist. I put it up at marketplacechecklist.com. And I walk through all of these key questions, like with DoorDash, for example. You look at frequency of use on the marketplace. How often is someone using it? You measure liquidity. How great is the marketplace at matching supply and demand? You look at defensibility and how strong are the network effects uh, and how high are the switching costs. So with DoorDash, you do experience what's called multi-tenanting, for example, where people might download multiple food delivery apps. But DoorDash has really been able to out-execute and bring in, they're very strategically, these business units like DashPass, for example, their answer to Amazon Prime, that increases that switching cost and makes it more sticky with consumers. And so this is like, you know, when Amazon did this, Amazon said, hey, we started as a D2C, direct-to-consumer e-commerce business, not a marketplace. But now the majority of their business is actually uh, from their marketplace model, where they have suppliers, buyers and sellers on their marketplace, much like eBay's original value proposition. And Amazon just out-executed eBay. Right. You're starting to see this might be the DoorDash Uber story, where DoorDash out-executes Uber, who was in the lead previously. The DoorDash has now taken the lead and is running with it in food delivery. And food delivery might ultimately be more attractive than rideshare. Right. We've certainly seen uh, Tony Hsu and his team capture a lot of market share in a short amount of time uh, versus other players. Mike, apply that checklist to Airbnb. Very strong brand. We've seen it sort of be a pandemic winner and post-pandemic winner. However, when you talk about stickiness and things like DashPass, Airbnb still doesn't have that. Is that a missed opportunity? I think there's a lot of opportunity there for Airbnb. I will say Airbnb, it's trade-offs, right? So often when you see frequency of use, which is a great thing on the checklist for DoorDash, you see lower average transaction value. Airbnb, frankly, has lower frequency of use, and that's always been their Achilles heel for me is when I started using Airbnb as an early adopter, I might only use it once or twice a year. Now I use it much more frequently. 
I think one of the big opportunities for Airbnb is now there's a new digital nomad lifestyle being unlocked by all of the remote work possibilities. You know, we're reading about the mega cap saying you have to come back to the office, but more and more companies are saying, hey, you have a very flexible option. Maybe you'd never have to come back to the office. That's a long-term kind of tailwind for Airbnb. If they can create something around that, you know, the digital nomad Airbnb Mm -hmm. pass lets you travel around with your group of friends. They can create more and more lock in. And I will point out that Airbnb, it's much less competitive than food delivery right now. There's not a lot of... Uh, direct substitutes. There was home away, and really that's it. Verbo, it, Verbo, you're not seeing a lot there. The OTAs are obviously a competitor. Uh, so I think Airbnb has up to. They are at a high yeah. EV to revenue multiple, though. I have to point that out. That's my only concern the, relative to the others. Right, that it's an expensive name, especially compared to those OTAs, uh, which are getting a lot more aggressive. Mike Afari, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. We got some new stats out from Microsoft about remote work. Those details later this hour. But first, keep an eye on cybersecurity names this week. Cloudflare, Sentinel One, Zscaler, all cut in half from their highs. But some analysts think now is the time to buy. Well, yesterday would have been the time to buy. Those names jumping in this morning's trade. We're back in a moment. Those parental controls that Instagram promised are finally arriving in the U.S. And with so much focus on Instagram uh, kids and Meta's overall focus on attracting younger users, Julia Borston has got more of those details. Julia? Well, John, Instagram is indeed launching those new parental controls today here in the U.S. They'll be rolling out globally later. Now, this is all part of its parent company, Meta's new family control center, which will allow parents and guardians to set limits on the amount of time that teens are spending on the platform and to see and get updates on which accounts they're following and which accounts they're being followed by. This move comes as Meta continues to face regulatory scrutiny and oversight from state and federal governments, as well as by the EU and UK. And it also comes as it struggles with user retention, particularly in the U.S., where Facebook's daily active user base declined by one million between the third and fourth quarter of last year. Now, this move could give parents more peace of mind about their teens' activity on Meta's platforms. Now, these are just the latest in Instagram parent Meta's push to give parents more control in the wake of last fall. Whistleblower Francis Haugen saying that the company is aware of the negative impact its products have on kids and on teens. I spoke with Frances Haugen at South by Southwest in Austin. She told me that as the company pivots to focus on the metaverse, it's more important than ever that Meta make changes so its issues are not amplified in that new dimension. You can catch my full interview with Haugen on CNBC.com. Guys? Julia, I wonder, though, is parental control really what, uh, what the pressure has been focused on, or is it the overall health of Instagram as an environment for one uh, for young people? I mean, it's one thing for parents to be able to say, okay, you've been in this toxic environment long enough, if they do believe it's toxic. It's another thing to clean up the environment. Well, I think those two things are intricately connected, John. One of the things that's part of this parental 
hub is there is access to a lot of information. Meta, Facebook, Instagram, they want to make sure that parents have information about not only what their specific kids are doing on the platform, but but these greater questions about how much time is appropriate, yeah. whether uh, whether some of these accounts they're cover they're following are maybe uh, not good for their mental health. So I think this is this is really about Meta trying to make sure that parents are educated because then if more comes out about what these risks are or how it's negative, at least Meta can say you know you're doing this uh, you know with all the knowledge knowledge about what can happen. But I think these two things are interrelated. And there is this question of, should they tweak the algorithm to make sure that kids, teenagers are not seeing content that's yeah. maybe not so good for their mental health? Julia, thank you. Uh, I don't know, John, does that give you peace of mind? Would it give you peace of mind if you could just limit their time, but not the environment? Um, my kids are still not on Instagram at all, and that gives me peace of mind. That, exactly. <laughs> and if you could just limit the time, I don't know that that would do it, right? You the want ultimate it. time limiter. Just no time at all. How does that work, though, when you take away the iPad? Not, not so well, right? They don't so have I accounts, wonder. and they don't particularly want them for now. We'll see, we'll see what happens eventually. Yeah, yeah we're well. talking about this in the break. Stick yes. to Minecraft. Yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin, meanwhile, popping back above 40K, along with the NASDAQ and other risk assets. Highest levels in a week. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Check on a stock we don't always talk about on Tech Check. Starbucks hired today on a surprise leadership change. Howard Schultz coming back as interim CEO. Kevin Johnson stepping down in April. But here's the tech angle. Johnson was a top exec at Microsoft for more than a decade, led Juniper, of course, and was brought in to expand Starbucks' digital footprint in part. Did it work? Kate Rogers has dug into that for us. Kate. Hey, John. Well, taking a look at the numbers in 2017 at year end, Starbucks had just over 13 million rewards members in the U.S. and they repped about a third of U.S. sales. Now, fast forward to this year, rewards members hit 25 million in the U.S., 45 million between China and the U.S. And in Q4 represented more than half of tender at the company operated stores. Now, Starbucks is also looking to tokenize its Starbucks star as part of the rewards program and figure out how other merchants can connect their rewards program to Starbucks rewards so they can exchange value across brands. That's very digital first, not something you often see in this space. They also launched partnerships with PayPal and others in the last year or so where you can reload your Starbucks card with Bitcoin and Ethereum by converting digital currencies to physical currencies. And then finally, when you talk about expanding the digital market, you really can't overlook the China growth story here. Starbucks had just over 1,000 locations in 2017. Today, more than 5,500. As Johnson often reminds shareholders, it is the, uh, the second home market for Starbucks and a big growth opportunity in the future. They've leaned into social gifting on WeChat and Alipay and really have taken advantage of that opportunity. So certainly uh, came in to do exactly what you said, grow this digital business, and they really have. Yeah, you can't underestimate what Starbucks has done on the tech side. Uh, John, still one of the most popular digital wallets before everyone was sort of looking at this space. Uh, one other stock finding love amid the sell-off bumble. That's up more than 45 percent in a week, although it is still negative for the month. And that is a stock that started the year at $36 per share. Tech Check is back in just a moment.
Microsoft, the company behind Office, LinkedIn, GitHub, and more, out with a report on the highlights and limits of remote work. Steve Kovac is here next to me. <laughs> In real life. Isn't that great? Yes, with yeah. those details. Steve? Yeah, so a uh, huge report. They surveyed about 30,000 people, plus they pulled in data from like LinkedIn and Office 365 usage. And what they found is the most interesting set to me, rather, is over half of leaders at companies are basically saying, come back to work. We want you in the office. A lot of employees are saying, eh, we want to do the hybrid thing or work from home forever. And then we have the managers stuck as the monkey in the middle here trying to figure out how to, you know, liaise between these two sides who want very different things. And, you know, as but at the same time, the tech companies are the first to have people coming back. You're in San Francisco right now. <laughs> You're seeing it, right? Let me tell you, there's a huge shift in what I've seen just over the last day or so versus what we're seeing in San Francisco. Our huge building hasn't even cracked 600 people yet, but... Here in New York and New Jersey, it feels a lot more full. So it's not that surprising that tech companies are going to handle it differently. We had a guest on earlier saying that that's why Airbnb and Brian Chesky has told us himself multiple times that people are going to want to travel and work. I wonder if that's going to be the case. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you, you know, if you listen to Peloton, we're going to stay home and exercise on our bikes forever. If you listen to Airbnb, we're going to work remotely forever in, in you know, these temporary housing situations. It's probably going to be a mix of that and what we're seeing now here. I mean, the newsroom's crowded. Yeah. Um, if you go downtown in Manhattan, you just see people walking around again. It's really opening up. And I also noticed in this report, like the tech companies, you know, when the pandemic first hit, they were some of the first to say, everyone go home. Mm -hmm. they, they were kind of ahead of the curve. And now they're ahead of the curve of having people come back. So it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, people got to come back to some degree. I I'm seeing it just the quality of interaction that you get, I mean, we're all sitting here, quality of interaction <laughs> that you get actually being with someone is different from what you can get remotely. When companies start to lose deals because their competitors are getting mm -hmm. FaceTime and they're getting screen time, it's going to get real. We're maybe not seeing that yet, but well, you know, flexibility the, is important. The, but The hey. flip side of that, though, hard to get talent that want to be back in the office, right? And so you have another angle on the talent wars. Anyway, Steve, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Great to have you on set. And, of course, all eyes are on the Fed today as they announce their plan for rates. The action begins at 1 p.m. Eastern with an all-star lineup leading up to the decision on the exchange. Coverage doesn't stop at 2 p.m. Former National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn is on closing bell. And Double Line's Jeffrey Gunlack is on overtime at 4 p.m. It is a big day here ahead on CNBC. Don't go anywhere. One more thing, and that is Mark Zuckerberg talking about the important issues at South by Southwest. Have a listen. Outer known makes great terry cloth clothes. I'm, I'm actually wearing it now. Um, it's um, it's and it's super comfortable. It's, it's like the right amount of terry, not too thick. You know, I think mm -hmm. too, too thick of a terry is yeah, sounds a like a 80 20 blend. Uh huh. I got you. Yeah, you, you gotta you know you gotta get the right balance on the terry. But you know he. he an 80-20 blend, John, or the current bear-to-bull ratio for Meta this year. Well, you, you it was like a barbecue moment. What was the barbecue sauce? Well, you got to make the connection, though. That brand is Kelly Slater's brand. He's legendary on a surfboard. Mark Zuckerberg, legendary on a wakeboard, yeah. right? And you got to have the right weight, 
right, to, to make that happen. So, Wow, that's more insight. John, he got that. He was, go. he was talking to you. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, we are seeing just another, you know, huge day for the NASDAQ, up nearly 3%. A lot of the growth names that we were talking about just earlier this week coming back huge. We're going to get to the halftime report. It starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.